Today's scripture is Zechariah chapter 7, verses 4 through 12. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, Say to all the people of the land and the priests, When you fast and mourn in the fifth month and in the seventh, for those seventy years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? When now those were the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets, when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgment, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the soldier, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refuse to pay attention and turn the stubborn shoulder, and stop their ears that they may not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard, lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts has sent by his spirit to the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good evening. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Worship team, thank you, sound. Thank you for those who are volunteering to make this service possible. My name is Marcus, and I am one of the pastors here, and I am very grateful to have the opportunity to serve you as your or a pastor. Um, this evening, we will spend our time in Zechariah chapter 7. I'm excited to get there with you, but before we begin, I always like to tell you that, here we go. I always like to tell you that James chapter 3 verses 1 says to me that I will be judged more strictly for what I'm going to do in the next 30 minutes. As, as a preacher, as a teacher of God's word, I will stand before God one day to say, to answer for what I'm going to do in the next 30 minutes. Are you with me? If you're with me, say amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father God, I am honored that you chose a broken vessel like me to, to, to preach, to communicate your word in a way that is uh, more than just a speech. Lord, I pray that you use this time to work in hearts, and maybe even if it's just one heart, uh, to communicate clearly what you indicate, what you want to communicate through this passage on this day in Tucson, Arizona, through this church. God, I am grateful uh, for where we are, and I'm grateful for so many who are, are a blessing to our city and are in our congregation. Lord, we love you, and we pray that the next 30 minutes we will stay engaged. In Jesus' name, amen. I have titled, titled this uh, exchange between the two of us, all of us and me, I guess, uh, Let's Transform Our Knowledge About the Poor to Action for the Poor. A little bit more wordy than I'm used to. So let me repeat that. Let's transform our knowledge about the poor into action for the poor. If I say that less than 15 times, you have the right to beat me upside the head. So the, 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 the series that we're in right now is, is a six-week series that we're calling Countercultural Convictions. Dave preached in week one about what it means to be countercultural. The second week was about gender, and last week was about sex. Now, Every week when we post the, the video of, of the sermon, we kind of look at how many views we get, right? By Friday, we usually have about 50. 
this week when the video posted and the title said, sex, we had 75 in seven hours. The next three weeks, we hope to get the same amount of views. <laughs> I'm only kidding, all right? We'll be talking today about the vulnerable, uh, next week about generosity, and then the following week about salvation, right? In the context of countercultural convictions. What does it feel like? What does it look like? What, what posture should we have as Christians who are living in a culture that we're going against in those three categories? Today is not so heavy, but it is challenging. We're in Zechariah chapter 7. Thank you for reading, and we'll get there in a few minutes, but I need to set the stage and, and, and welcome us into where we are in our current context and take us back to the ancient context as well. In America today, we know we have certain symbols that enable us to see our stability, right? Certain norms that we have in our culture, a baseline of necessities that make our life standards, our standard of living possible. As a people, we never have not ever had them, and sometimes it feels like they're so solid we rarely ever think about them. The last few years, however, have felt like we've hit a vulnerable spot. In all of these instances, and I'm going to list some things, and you tell me at the end of this list, how do you feel? Our democracy has been vulnerable in the last year and a half, right? We, we, votes, are votes counted? Are they not counted? Can we, trust, can we trust our system that we've always trusted for years? Besides the year 2000, some of you guys were probably too young to remember, hanging chads and, and those kinds of things. If you're over a certain age, you know what I'm talking about. Um, our democracy has seemed a little bit uh, more vulnerable. Globalization through digital communication seems very vulnerable these days, right? You don't know what to trust on the internet, right? Mark Sayers, a famous pastor from Australia, and he does a podcast called This Cultural Moment, said this, and I thought he was exactly right. He said, the internet, when it was first invented, felt like this shiny new thing that everyone wants to, wanted to be a part of, right? Now it feels like a dark forest that we can't get out of. It's like, like oh, man, I'm going to post this. Maybe I shouldn't. I'm going to comment here. I uh, probably shouldn't. It's like, that person was a friend in high school, and I'm going to snooze them. Or maybe that's just me. <laughs> right? Our churches seem vulnerable. The leadership of churches now, right? People, uh, uh, leaders are falling by the wayside, it seems like, all kinds of scandals. Right? On the lighter note, last Last spring, I was leading another church in Denver, and, and, and COVID hit. Well, as I, I don't know much about technology, right? Then I'm preaching. All of a sudden, I'm preaching on Zoom, or I'm preaching on YouTube, and I'm preaching to an empty room, and then somebody had the nerve to tell me, Marcus, your forehead is kind of big, and you need to work on your T-zone with some powder. <laughs> I don't know what a T-zone is. <laughs> I didn't know, right? Our bodies are vulnerable. COVID, we didn't understand it. We still don't understand it. The anxiety you get when you, you feel like, oh, I got exposed last year. I went to the grocery store. I tell the story all the time. I went to the grocery store. Back in Denver, they said one in 40 people had COVID. So when I walked into the grocery store, one, two, three, 38, I'm out, right? As soon as I get there, I, like, I got to go. I didn't want any problems, right? Our hospitals are vulnerable. Overcrowding. You don't know if something happens to you where you have a bed. That wasn't a problem five years ago. 
The scientists are telling us the earth is vulnerable. But I know you've seen that sign that says there's no planet B. Makes you feel some kind of way. Our food supply chain is vulnerable. Just the, just the, just the supply chain of our, of our culture. Last spring, you went to the grocery store, and toilet paper was, couldn't find it. Water, couldn't find it. Wipes, good luck, right? People were posting, oh, I saw wipes in the Costco on this street, and you get there, they're gone. There's no doubt in the last year or so, no doubt, right, contributes to the low-grade anxiety that we all face and is more pronounced in people younger than 40, in people younger than 30, in people younger than 20, right? That, that kind of anxiety that you feel, all these things that we trusted for so long now feel like oh, they're kind of unstable. Everyone is vulnerable nowadays, it seems. It seems as though you and I are one bad decision away from being counted amongst the vulnerable, one missed paycheck away from there, one bad investment, one sick child, one chronic terminal illness can land you on the street, one accident, one bad storm away from being counted amongst the vulnerable. Who will take care of me? That fear alone makes us have a sense of incredible vulnerability. There are so many groups in America today, or in the world today, that are considered uh, vulnerable. I want you to think of the chronically homeless, the chronically sick, even the developmentally de delayed, the mentally ill, the insufficiently educated, the abused. This list is by no means exhaustive, but you get the picture. The Bible, in several different places, named four groups of people that are the baseline, the, the, the bare minimum that we should care for. Not to the exclusion of others, but a baseline, right? It, name, it, it names the vulnerable people as the orphan, the foreigner, the poor, and the widow. The book of Zechariah, if you would turn there with me, Oh, man, I just lost my timer. There we go. If you would turn to the book of Zechariah with me, um, if, you hit, if you're in the Old Testament, you get to Malachi, you've gone too far, just go a couple pages back, right? Sometimes it's difficult to find our Bibles, and I understand that. I like to make a joke all the time and say that those minor prophets are, are, are like the flyover books of the Bible, right? Stay with me. We, we like to do coastal Bible reading. We read Genesis on, on, on one coast, and we fly over and we get to the New Testament, the California of the Bible, right? In between there, we don't, we don't even, we don't try, we don't bother, right? But Zechariah is in one of those places that we call, I like to call the flyover books. The flyover books are where kind of Bible studies, if you're trying to read the Bible in a year, it gets pretty tough. So the book of Zechariah was written for some context here in 520 B.C., basically about 500 years before Jesus is born. And the people, the, the people of Israel who are the subjects of this book have just returned from exile, meaning they had misbehaved in a bad way and they had been conquered by their neighbors and taken to another land. And God has allowed them to come back to, the cult, to, their, to their land in order to, to, to farm, to care, to stay, to be a people once again. The prophet Zechariah is saying, hey, listen, 
your ancestors did this and they resulted in their exile. So here is where we are today and you need to do certain things. And one of those things that you need to do is to pursue justice and mercy for the vulnerable. You with me? Zachariah is pushing for them to participate in God's kingdom, to care for the vulnerable, the idea of caring for the vulnerable through justice and mercy. This is not only just, it's not just found in Zechariah 7, it is found also, these four groups, are, some of these groups are found in Isaiah 58, Psalm 68, James 1, Luke 4, Matthew 25, Luke 14, all these passages, old and new, God mentions these four groups that we ought to care for. Let me offer you a definition what I'm working with this evening when I say the vulnerable. The vulnerable can be defined as those who have, had, who, who have a permanent or semi-permanent identity that renders them emotionally, financially, physically exposed to the harsh realities of society. They are susceptible to physical or emotional attack based on their position in society. These four groups are mentioned that the, these four groups are mentioned that the people of God should care for. We'll look at verses four through seven when God, when God asks some rhetorical questions of the people of Israel, he says, what you're doing religiously, are you doing for yourself or are you doing it for me? And then verses 8 to 10, he mentions the groups that we should care for. And then verse 11 shows the people's reaction to what God is saying. On December 26, 1995, I got my first job. It's at the high-end restaurant that we like to call Burger King. And yeah, I'm scrubbing floors, I'm taking out the trash, and I'm loving life. $4.50 an hour. You didn't laugh. Back then, it was big. It was big money, big money, right? I could afford to get some Jordans, maybe a hat or something. While I was there, there was a woman I would call Stacy. Stacy was an older woman, over forty, maybe even over fifty at the time. She had been working at Burger King at that same location for two years prior to before I got there. She was very compliant. She was developmentally a little bit delayed, but she was functional. She drove an old car. She showed up on time. She left late, and the managers took advantage of her kindness. They took advantage of her demeanor. They took advantage of her person. She was a vulnerable person, and she was oppressed. I'll tell you why, because we all got raises, and Tacy uh, didn't. I went back to Germantown, Maryland, where I grew up in 2008, and she was still working there. God calls us and says, do not oppress. What systems are we a part of that oppress the vulnerable? We didn't know, the, we did, I didn't know her story. We don't know people's stories, right? Was she an orphan? Was she a widow? How did she get here? Right In this vast ocean of material prosperity that we have in this country, when you see other people have three, four houses and you are working minimum wage, you ask yourself, why? Does God care about me? 
if you feel slow and steady in the progress of American e economic progress, you, you, you feel virtually ignored. God says in this passage, in a lot of places in the Bible, that I see you and I love you. This is a direct contrast to what was actually happening in the surrounding cultures of ancient Middle East, ancient Near Eastern times. See, in the ancient Near East, when people were living in a pluralistic culture and the gods were present everywhere, all around the Israelites, right? It was known, it was assumed, it was actually, it was actually, it was it, it was it was clearly assumed that God cared about the rich. He favored the powerful because it was widely believed in, all, it believed in all belief systems that if you were rich, if you were powerful, God had favored you. I need you to get this. The beautiful sound of rain. If you were rich and you were powerful, God actually favored you. That's what the surrounding culture said that God's cared about. You were, you were on God's good side if you were rich and powerful. So in this highly patriarchal society, for the God of heaven to communicate that he cares about the widow and the orphan is countercultural. He says, I am for the fatherless in the Israelite culture where religious laws actually favored people who came from two-parent families. God is making provisions for the foreigner when the Israelites want to stick together. The message of God, folks, is always counter-cultural. He does not give preferential treatment to the powerful, the beautiful, the rich. Unlike our society today or back then, right? Our society today says if you're not powerful, rich, or beautiful, you should work as hard as you can so you become one of those things. Then people will listen to you. Then you will have a voice. God is saying, no, I actually care for those who are lowly. Let's transform our knowledge about the vulnerable into action for the vulnerable. I'm going to start, I'm going to work this in kind of two sections. I wanted to work in four sections, but it would have been four hours. So we're going to work in two sections. We're going to talk about the fatherless and the widow and then we'll talk about the foreigner and the poor. I put those two together. Who are widows? Who are widows? And why should we care about them today? We know clearly that a widow is someone, is a woman who has lost her husband, and an orphan is someone who has lost their parents. In the culture, that, that is our definition. In the culture where this text is written, these two groups are so highly vulnerable because of the way the society was structured. Men in that culture were so central, they, they actually controlled what happened in the home and they worked outside of the home. A young, a young, boy's, career in, a young boy's career was often tailored by what his dad did. If you are a carpenter, your son became a carpenter. Fathers had a lot of power and influence. But when married men died, their families became very vulnerable. You can understand why. They were exposed. This is why the Israelites didn't take going to war so lightly. 
because men were lost and they produced more vulnerable people in their culture. It was extremely stressful for wives when their husbands left for war because back then women were extremely dependent on men, not through no fault of their own. This is how the society was structured. It is important to note, and I have to say, and I must say, and it's good for me to say, that this was human culture and not a biblical mandate. You hear me? It got a little quiet. Did you hear me? The magnitude of God's words to say that I, we should not oppress these people is heavy. God is taking the side of people whose societal fate was decided once the father died. If a woman didn't remarry, her life was very daunting. She was as vulnerable as they could get in society. So God says, do not oppress or extort them. I care for them. Jesus, who comes along 500 years later, goes through life, is born and is vulnerable, right, to a mother whose name was Mary, who cared about her. Uh, frankly, she, we know that she was married to Joseph, but all through the Gospels, you don't hear much about Joseph. It is assumed historically that Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, had passed away. So, in a sense, Jesus was vulnerable. Jesus then goes, uh, he, he, is, he is taken, he's put on a cross, for our sins, and he's on the cross on that afternoon, and below the cross, his mom and other people are there, and one of the, one of the disciples, John, is sitting there, and Jesus says to his mother, and he says to John, John, behold your son. Mary, behold your son, and he's talking to John. And the Bible says in John 19 that John took Mary in from that Imagine if John was a single man or perhaps he was married. Bringing home a widow to care for her was completely countercultural. I know we can't help that. There are widows in our culture today. and It's not news to anybody. But the question is, in America in, 20, in the 21st century, what, what does it actually look like to be a widow, right? The, 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 the strict definition is a woman who has lost her husband, but I need you to stay with me because there are several other categories that we may not know or may ignore. In our culture now, women are more economically independent and have safety nets that cover widows in our society. It does not change the fact that we ought to care but for the traditional widow, and by the way, there are also young widows. In their grief and loss, we ought to care. There are widows in our church. In fact, I was speaking to one of them this week, and she was so glad to be in this community. She was saying how, how, how precious it was to look. And she's, she's, I won't put her age out there. Uh, she's, yeah, she's a widow, and she loves this church. And as we were joking and talking about the serpent, she said to me, she said, sometimes I look upon our congregation, and I see the young moms, and it reminds me of when you look at toddlers, like you have five or six toddlers standing around a hot stove, and they're all wondering, how does this work? What, what's going to happen here? And she's looking at that, and she feels as though she, it, as she could help. 
old people, older people, with a little bit of snow up top, do not age out of our congregation and our community. Their contribution is valuable. Widows aren't just there to receive our love. They're actually here to, 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 to give their, their wisdom. All of us here can talk to a second grader about what he should, not, should or should not do. We know because we've seen it. Or we've seen somebody else who's done it. The expansion of the widow definition, let me expand it for you, right? We are, we're sitting here today. We know there's a culture. There are tons of single moms, single mothers, whose husbands or boyfriends have abandoned them. They're teenage moms. They're moms who are victims of domestic violence, exchange relationships, dangerous environments, even inside of their own homes. They are vulnerable. In their vulnerability, sometimes they face significant shame in, in, with the fact of coming into a community like this, coming into our church. They're seeing most people as favored because we, it seems like everybody's doing all right, and I'm the only one not doing all right. So does God actually care about me, right? They still believe that because people are doing well economically, God is favoring them, and that's absolutely not. God is saying to the single mom and a widow that I love you. Verse 4 to 7 in this passage, God is asking, he asks two rhetorical questions. One, he says, you fasted for, on the seventh for these 70 years. Was it for me that you fasted? Here's what God is saying. He's asking the people that, he said, you guys are participating in religious rituals. Maybe perhaps you're going to church. Maybe you're going to an RC or you're doing, you're fasting. You're doing, you're fasting and you're feasting, the Bible says. But are, how, why are you doing those things? It, is it just religious, I can't even say that word, religiosity? Or are you doing it for me? Are you doing it for yourself? Those questions are actually followed then by what God says is not, is true religion. It's true care. It's what the church should be doing. God says you can do all those things, but if you're missing caring for the vulnerable, you are actually missing the point. James 1.27. Religiosity makes God angry. Hear me. Who are you honoring when you worship? When you fast, if you fast when you attend worship gatherings, when you pray, what's your heart posture? Is it religious duty? God actually condemns religious observances that are not centered on him. God is not pleased. This was a warning to the new generation of Israelites in the land that says, if you don't worship God purely, the same thing will happen to you that happened to your ancestors. Verses 8 and 9, God is very clear. To the people, he says, do not oppress the widows, the orphans. Do not oppress them, right? Instead, you should visit, you should care, you should address them. That's the widow and the orphan. In this country, there are 24 million fatherless I don't know what the latest number is of how many people we have in this country, 
with 24 million is a lot of children. And you can you know the statistics that I'm going to read off intuitively. That's how good it is. That's how good we know these kinds of things. 50, 57% of those kids are African American. 31% are Hispanic. 20% of them are white. When I was a teacher, I think upwards of 70% of my students in the inner city did not know who their fathers were. The church has been historically working on what I what we call downstream ministries. Meaning we do prison ministry. We do outreach to the homeless. That's downstream. But there are kids in this very city of Tucson who are looking for mentors and father figures. Let's be the church to the orphan, the widows, the foreigners, and the poor. I was having a conversation with Kirsten Traina, who heads uh, Redemption's Foster Care and Adoption Ministry, AZ-127, if you're interested. She said, foster care, quote, ain't for everybody. It is emotionally expensive love. He says, some people can and are willing. Some feel obligated that they need to jump in, and they jump into the Olympic lane. Meaning you, take, you, you, you hear a sermon like this, and you say, I got to get involved. I got to do something. I'm going to go adopt a kid. Right? You're in the Olympics all of a sudden. But it's a walk, jog, run, then Olympics, if you want to ease into this. Because it's a long-term love when you adopt a child, when you mentor a kid. John took on Jesus' mother. It is a lifestyle change. It is counter-cultural. But she did say everyone in here can do upstream ministries. Everyone is capable of mentoring a young boy or girl. We are all capable of helping a student learn to read as Safford. That's upstream. A third grader learning to read actually prevents him from ending up in prison, and you know this. If you want a good book to read, John Fast's book, Locked In. It's a great book. It talks about the prison population and how we got there. I will be remiss if I didn't say that it's actually happening in our congregation now. There are two families who are involved in, in, in adopting a, a boy as in our congregation. So it is, it's happening. When I heard their story this week, I promise you it will bring you to tears. A family opening up their home to take, on, to take on a young man who loves their home, actually. It's a lifestyle change. It's countercultural. When our culture says it's all about me and mine, Jesus says, I care about the least, the lost, and the vulnerable, and you should as well. This is a counter to the message that we receive every day. If you're moved to care, you're in the right place. If you're moved to, to, to do something, to say, where do I start? AZ-127 has different phases of where of your stage of life to say, if you wanted to help, you don't necessarily have to adopt a boy or girl this week. You have options. It is that important. 
We have so many churches in a city. Yeah, we have. We still have. We have so many Christians in a city. Yeah, we still have kids. I know it's not lost on some of you, and it's definitely not lost on me that I lost both of my parents when I was 11, and someone took me in. If someone hadn't made a life decision, I don't know where I'd be. I don't know where I'd be. The pain, and I gave them, I want to use the word, I gave them a hard time. <laughs> I wasn't the easiest teenager to deal with, but you can understand, right? I left my home, both parents dead. I'm in two different countries, learning different languages, coming to the States, didn't understand anything. I gave them a hard time, but I'm grateful because if it wasn't for the sovereign grace of God, I made a ton of mistakes. The next two groups that I'm going to shift to right now is um, the foreigner and the poor. Now, when we go here, I got to warn you, I know I'm on your block. I'm going to open your front door now, and I'm probably going to go in your fridge and, and, and sit on your couch and start changing your channels. When we talk about the foreigner and the poor, the question then becomes, it becomes a little bit more political. Uh-oh. Because the narrative is those two groups have actually made decisions, and they've ended up here. They've ended up poor because they've made some decisions. They've ended up foreigners or sojourners or travelers because they've made some decisions. You with me? These people are still who are still in powerless positions in our society. They have no voice when most of us have a platform. In this, in this country where people can pay to spend a weekend in space, they don't even have a place on this planet. No doubt they've made choices, you would agree with me, that got them here. Sometimes those choices, however, have been made for them. You have made some choices. By the grace of God, you're here. Now, one of us hadn't made a mistake that could have ended up some that we could have ended up on the street. I know there are many programs in our city that 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 aim to help the extremely poor in our city, right? But are we as a congregation, as a people, as RCs, willing to welcome the extremely poor, the working poor, the foreigner into our communities? I'm not just saying this. What must be acknowledged as I go on here is that is this. God is not inherently punitive against the rich as much as he is redemptive and caring towards the poor. You follow me? Just because you are rich doesn't mean you are God's enemy. And just because you are poor doesn't mean you are virtuous. That will sink in. He cares, God in reference to, he cares about our direct and indirect posture when it comes to the poor, we are not to oppress them. We are not to participate in systems that oppress them. What is at hand, what is at hand here is the challenge of stewardship. What if you've earned your, whether you've earned your status in society from hard work, right? Maybe you have some wisdom, you made some shrewd business decisions, or you were born into a neighborhood with great schools. 
or you were blessed with great parents, a great lineage, a great legacy, or you have exceptional intelligence, genetics, or a great community, we are all called to steward and use those gifts well. Because they are gifts. We are not to use them to oppress vulnerable groups. Jesus in this, pa in this parable in Luke chapter 12, verse 48, he says, to everyone who is given much, much will be required. And from him, from whom they have it, much has been entrusted, they, much will be demanded. I hope it's sinking in. I don't know if you, you, you've been watching the news or reading the news. I'm 42, sorry. <laughs> reading the news um, of what's been happening at the border with the Haitians. Whether, you, whether you're on one side of the spectrum that says, oh, we should just open a border and let everybody in, or you're on the other side of the spectrum that says, shut the border down and let no one in, some of us, most of us are, are somewhere in the middle. Because both of, these, both of these extreme positions have some inconsistencies in them. Right? The folks who are for open borders still lock their doors. We have very little concern, very little power over our national immigration policy. So what we can do is upstream ministries. It's upstream care to people we already have here. What does Jesus say? Let's dive in. Jesus says this. He says in one of his famous parables, the priests, and the Levites, the religious people, the people who spend their time in church doing all the things that they should be doing, they walk past the stranger on the side of the road. And Jesus makes the Samaritan, the hero of that story, the Samaritan is a foreigner. It was the Samaritan who reversed the question, who said, as Dr. King famously said, if I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? Not if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? That's not me. That's Dr. King. Jesus made a Samaritan woman in John chapter 4 an evangelist to her community. In Matthew's gospel, if you notice, Jesus, Jesus, the, the, the Jesus' genealogy includes four women who were all foreigners or associated with foreigners. Tamar in Genesis chapter 38 was a, was a Canaanite. Rahab, who hosted the spies, was, lived in Jericho. Ruth was a Moabite. Bathsheba was a Jewish woman married to a Hittite. God cares for foreigners, is what I'm trying to say. We are all foreigners when it comes to the gospel. We are all Gentiles that we have been grafted in. And we ought to steward that well. Most of us here may never go overseas to do ministry or missions, but just so fate would have it, refugees are coming to do so. They are coming in droves. They will be here. And if you feel a heart to care and walk alongside, let me know. 
to what's true in this passage and what's uncomfortable. If we are to care for the orphan, the poor, the widow, and the foreigner, so that they do not stay in their condition, they do not stay in their, in, in their situation, what should we do? Here's what the Israelites did in the passage. If you look at verse 11, the, the Bible actually says they, they stopped up their ears. Who does that? Toddlers. I'm not putting anybody out here. She's not here. I'm not putting anybody out here, right? Puts their fingers in their ears because they, they say they, the Bible says they harden their heart like, like hard as diamonds. They didn't want to hear what God was saying about the vulnerable groups. I pray that is not our posture as a church or personally that we're, we're, God is looking at it and said, these people are putting their fingers in their ear because I'm talking about the poor. How can we counter culture by caring for the vulnerable? See, the idols of our heart tells us that we need to be, by, we need to be for ourselves. We need to place a responsibility of caring for someone else, someone else. Deeply embedded in us is the, is, is the lie that says if you live right, you will get to the top. Your moral effort will get you close to God. Thereby implying that the poor and the vulnerable are morally bankrupt. The notion that high morals and high work, great work ethic equals wealth and conversely low morals and questionable ethics leads to poverty or is, is, is strictly false. We understand a sovereign God who is clearly at the center who, is, who love is at the center of his ethic. I'm going to close here. Ooh, I mean, Keith, you're going to have to have mercy on that. Maybe you can slice it up a little bit. Um, God cares about the vulnerable, the people at the bottom. Can you imagine a God who would care more for the rich and famous than for the poor? Can you imagine can you imagine God siding with the rich over the poor? Can you imagine a God that because we performed well, so he blesses us? Can you imagine that, God? I can't. If that God were real, it would seem the rich would once again the rich would once again seemingly control their heavenly destiny. But God says, No, I'm the same God of the Old Testament who in a patriarchal society I cared for the poor, in a society where, the, where economic and social security was found in deep family roots, I cared for the orphan. In a society where foreigners were feared and shunned, he invited Gentiles into the story. In a pagan culture where God's favored the rich, he identified with the poor. That's the God we serve. He was countercultural way before it was popular in every sense. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, it says, He was rich and he became poor so that you and I could become rich. If you belong to our community and you call this church home and you would like to spearhead some efforts, this is my ask right now, you care about the poor. If you care about the fatherless, the widows, the orphans, the foreigners, we need a clearer avenue of people who are willing to serve as liaisons to these communities so we can engage. You won't have to do too much of the heavy lifting. I would love to meet you. I used to tell people that I, I, I preferred lunch <laughs> over coffee, but now I don't even like coffee. So 
we can meet for water. The gospel, folks, ladies and gentlemen, as I close, is not exclusively cognitive. What God has done for us, we ought to do for others. It's reflective, reflexive. One commentator says, Christians, we should be famous for our care for the poor. In a few minutes, we will end this service. The worship team will sing, and we will receive a benediction, and the metaphorical bell will ring, and the service will end. My prayer will continue to be that, and the big idea as you walk out of here should be this. Lord, help me hear the cry of the poor. Help me see the vulnerable. Help me lend my voice in advocacy for the poor. Help me have a heart tender towards the plight of those in need. And help my hands be weak to do, help my hands be quick to help those in our society who are so often very forgettable. Let's transform our knowledge about the vulnerable into action for the vulnerable. Will you buy a heads with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your grace and your mercy. I thank you for the words that you have spoken. I pray that you use them in whatever way you choose in the hearts of those here. God, I thank you for where we are in the city. As refugees come and people come, we pray that you use us as a community to serve those who are vulnerable. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.